So Jesus is at the home of a prominent Pharisee, ruler of the Pharisees, and we started studying this two weeks ago. And first we studied these three scenarios that Jesus leads the people through at that rather uncomfortable lunch. But it all moves towards this fourth. And the fourth is just a tremendous parable, beautiful parable about the great banquet. I'm just gonna read from 15 to 24, if you wouldn't mind keeping in mind what's already happened at that lunch. So verse 15 of chapter 14. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he, Jesus, said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. And the grass withers and the flowers fade. And this good word, it endures forever. It's meant for us even to today. And so it's just a marvelous parable, stirring parable. And it really wasn't until I was preparing my mother's eulogy last week that I realized how much some of the teaching of this parable was ingrained in me, my siblings, as we were growing up. My mother loved this parable. And she impressed it on us by singing this funny little song all the time in the kitchen. And I I was having these pictures of us singing in the kitchen, preparing the meal, this little song, I cannot come to the banquet. Don't bother me now. I've married a wife. I've bought me a cow. I have fields and commitments that cost a pretty sum. Please hold me excused. I cannot come. Do y'all know that song? Well, we grew up singing it. But even more than that portion of the song about the excuses was how much she'd tell us of the importance and she herself practiced going out to the highways and byways. Let's go out to the highways and byways and urge them to come in. So it was sovereignly, providentially sweet and even kind of funny for me that in a sermon series that I've been, we've been going through for almost a year now, that it just happened to arrive at this passage to study during the week of my mother's passing into glory. 
And so what I want, the overall picture of this, this parable is that there, there really is a banquet. There is a great banquet. That we don't go to nothingness. The world doesn't cycle down and lose energy and we don't go into a void. I'm reading these, you know, I've, I've, I've reverted. I read high school fantasy novels now. And I've, I've finished two series of novels in which when you die, you go to the void. The void. And that is the logical teaching of secularism, that when, when we die, we cease. There's just nothing else. Our bodies feed plants, and it's over. But... In the midst of this lunch, Jesus looked at these folks and he gives a parable of a, of a banquet that everything moves to a joyful, celebratory, sumptuous, delightful, harmonious, interpersonally close banquet of festivity and joy that fills your hearts with gladness. And all of history moves to that, and your life is intended to move to that. So, a couple of weeks ago, I just made the observation that Jesus came eating and drinking. And it's the manner in which he extended the kingdom. Because when he ate lunch with somebody, he didn't just symbolize the fact that all history is going to a banquet that I want you to be at. But in a preparatory manner, he enacted that grace now. Like, you're getting to eat with me now. He, he does it for us too. And so it's a way for him to both symbolize and spread the gospel, God's generous, gracious welcome that he wants to sit at a table and converse with you and know you and let you know him. And that's life. And in our chapter also, however, we see that though Jesus loves to share meals with people, loves to have table fellowship with people, that he's also can be a very uncomfortable person to take with you to a meal. And he, it's uncomfortable here and that's what we looked at last week. The, the three statements Jesus makes that are quite uncomfortable because God's grace stings, it, it hurts, it breaks. We may sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound, but grace is not always a sweet alluring and whisper to draw to God. Sometimes grace confronts us head on and it must. Because you and I, by nature, wrap our lives around other saviors. We have our priorities all upside down. And Jesus has got to smite us with his grace sometimes. Think of Paul heading to Damascus and the ascended Christ smites him to the ground. What an amazing display of grace, but it certainly wasn't comfortable. And in that meal, we don't have comfort, we have discomfort. So in that context of a meal in which Jesus is sharing himself with Pharisees, you know, again, there's no record of Jesus ever refusing to eat with anybody. 
If you want to eat with Jesus, he's all about it. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And so he eats at this Pharisee's house, extending an invitation, but it's an uncomfortable invitation. First, he heals a guy they had planted there, trapping him. He just looks at him and says, which of you, if his son or his ox was about to drown, wouldn't rescue him? He, he, conf- he heals in the context of that meal, showing the kingdom of God is about healing, and then he confronts their self-righteous lack of mercy and said, why do you think that looks like my kingdom? And then he looks at them scrambling for the best seats by the host that would indicate their higher status than the others, and he exhorts them about humility. The kingdom of God is about humility, because Jesus is about humility to the lowest place, and so he confronts their self-promoting pride, all their priorities built up around that. And then he looks at the host. I mean, things keep getting more uncomfortable, he looks at the host and he talks to him about true hospitality, that he confronts the self-serving views of relationships and teaches on generosity, that the kingdom of God is all about lavish generosity. And so you have these three scenarios that, that um, you know, that Jesus teaches them and it just gets more and more uncomfortable. And so if they had clocks or they wore watches, you could hear the little secondhand tick on several occasions. It's this awkward silence. You could, you could cut the tension with a knife. And, but that too is grace. And so in verse 14, Jesus looked at him and said, you know, what he says. He says, and oh yeah, and so he says, and you will be blessed if you bite the poor, the lame, and the blind because they can't repay you, and you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So there's a guy there in the lunch, and the discomfort has gotten to such a point that, you know, in Jesus' words, the resurrection of the just has sparked his thought, and he gets this idea, maybe it's just an instinctive reaction of how he can defuse the situation. He can say something you know, to change the environment, make it joyful, establish some common ground. And, uh, you know, we do that. We try to make things better in awkward conversations. And so to smooth things over, he makes a toast. He says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. He's trying to make things better. The lunch is too stressful for me. But, but the good thing is that he does equate the kingdom of God with a great banquet. And he got that right on. This delicious, rich feast with wonderful fellowship and music and dancing and conversation, knowing and being known, those moments when you gather with your family, your friends, and it's like everything's in sync. And that's, that's living, that's the best, that's the best thing. And they, they had a sense that that was the most satisfying, fulfilling thing, and that's the symbol of the kingdom of God. And they come at it faithfully. You know, Isaiah spoke about that in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the finest of meats, the best of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. 
God spoke this way. And then the Bible concludes, hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns, let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory for the wedding feast of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear. It's a feast, it's a celebration. And so then you look at Proverbs 8, 9, and 10. You know, you have wisdom that's a beautiful woman. You have folly that's also attractive woman. And so this woman wisdom is on the highest place of the city. And she says, I prepared my feast for you. All you simple people, come in and eat my food and learn understanding. But then in the very same context, you have Woman folly, this loud, attractive, alluring woman that says, I too have prepared my feast. Y'all come in here because stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious, but no one knows that the banquet she is preparing is a banquet in the grave. The good life is a feast and God has prepared us for a feast. The, The question is, are we following Lady Wisdom or Lady Folly? Well, the bad thing about this man's toast, blessed are all who eat bread in the kingdom of God, is that he just assumes that he's going to be there because he's the religious elite. He's, he and the fellow Pharisees there, they must be included. They keep the rules better than anybody. It's this self-congratulatory part. They're patting each other on the back saying, we're gonna be there. I don't know about all those other people that don't keep God's law like us, but we will be there. Let's be happy about that and diffuse this situation. But really, trying to make things more comfortable, he actually gets himself in hotter water because Jesus goes into his fourth statement. He's so abounding in grace, he's not gonna stop. He's relentless. I'm gonna wake you up. John MacArthur said it this way, Jesus always sought to shatter false religious hope. He says, he never says, yeah, you know, we all worship the same God, it's all gonna be okay. This misguided assumption is so perilous and so deceptive that Jesus ratchets up the discomfort even more in order to immediately, unmistakably correct it. And that's severe grace. So first, the invitation, and John MacArthur's been my favorite secondary source, helped with my outline as well. The invitation first. There's a man, a prominent, wealthy man, he's probably the most important man in the city. He gives a great banquet, invites many. And uh, just camp out on the words great and many. It's not a small, meager banquet. Relate that to chapter 13, verse 23, when this guy goes, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Well, I don't know. God's making a great banquet for many people. He's not meager in his grace. He's big-hearted and abounding in his grace. So in the story, this banquet would be the event, the huge gala of this little city. If you got an invitation to such a banquet, nothing would stop you from going. You would feel so honored and so privileged, like you were somebody with incredible anticipation you would await the arrival of such a banquet. So in a world where you grew up, you know, 
subsistence farmers with your crops, you butchered your own animals, you didn't have refrigeration, so such an event, some, some huge meal like that would follow this double invitation system. It's kind of like our RSVPs or save the date, but even more so, more intense. It would be less precise. You'd get this early invitation that I want you to be there and it's coming soon, but I've got a lot of work to do and I'm not exactly sure sure what day I'm gonna pull it off. So you'd accept and the host would get to work. He'd make preparations, he'd gather, prepare everything, the vegetables, the fruit, the bread, the meat, the wine, the desserts, whatever. And then he'd decorate the banqueting hall, he'd get the music together. He had so much to do to get it ready to pull off such an event. And then at the point where he finally determined, yeah, I can fix a day and a time, then he'd send out a servant and say, okay, you've been waiting, you've been anticipating, it's gonna be this afternoon or tomorrow evening. Come for everything is now ready. I just want you to see that the host is God and the servant is Jesus. And there was a lot of preparation. And God's saving plan reached, finally reached its wonderful goal. And he said, you've been aching for it and it's here, it's here in me. Think of Jesus as a servant saying, everything is now ready and what that entails. In effect, he's saying, I am the true servant. I will be slain for the feast. It's ready. It's upon you. It's here. What about the excuses, the excuses that are given? So the servant goes out to all those who've RSVP'd yes, who accept the first invitation, and he says to them, come for everything is now ready, expecting that everybody will be overjoyed that it's upon them. But instead of this eagerly receiving the news and getting ready to go, they all alike make excuses. It's like across the board, all of them unanimously. Like no one says yes, they all say no. After all the preparations are made, after indicating they were going to be there, after they were made based upon them going to be there, all the work and all the expense, all the effort, they unanimously say no. And their excuses, not one of them is solid and good and reasonable, they're, they're actually laughable. Ridiculous, even offensive. They amount to saying, I, I wanna rearrange my sock drawer, I'll do anything, I don't want to go to that banquet. So on the one hand, Jesus' scenario sounds like a joke, like no one would act like that. The Pharisees are looking at each other, they've been uncomfortable, now there's this nervous laugh. It was an incredible honor, again, to be invited to such a feast. I mean, life was hard and mundane and monotonous. You just ground out your existence with subsistence, farming, eating grain. But to have the opportunity to go to this opulent feast where people served you meat and danced and sang, I mean, it's the event of a year, maybe a lifetime. The who's who are there. Now, just transpose that to glory. And on the other hand, to reject the summons to attend was an outright affront to the host. It was a complete disrespect through hollow pretexts. It was to say you didn't want anything to do with him, 
Some would say it's even such a derision, such a scorn that it's tantamount to declaring war on the host. And let's think about our excuses in that context. And so look at the excuses. There's just a sample of excuses, meaning there's a host of other ones, but these are a sample of them. The others aren't even better. One guy just bought a field and wants to go and look at it, except he's bought the field and the dirt's not going anywhere. It's gonna be there tomorrow. Another guy just bought five yoke of oxen and now after the purchase wants to examine them, but again, they're already his. He's bought them already. The third just got married and he just wants to be with his wife or maybe she doesn't want to go, so he decides to stay home and it plays off Deuteronomy 24 that gave a newly married couple liberty for a year from serving in the military or in public service, but this is far from that. It's a party. It's a pretext not to go. Again, they're all laughable excuses, absurd excuses to miss the party of your life. Your parties are upside down. You have enmity towards the host. And what it's saying is that these people elect not to go to the banquet because they prioritize must their people and their possessions. That's what they're living for. They don't have bandwidth for anything else. Their assets, their relationships. Paul David Tripp's book, Money and Sex, is what drives us. I don't have time. I don't have bandwidth or space. It's just not important to me. So it makes us wonder, what are our excuses? You know, what excuses does our culture give? What are the variants of these excuses? So Ben sent me an article um, a couple of weeks ago from the Atlantic, plays off various books, but reporting that 40 million Americans have quit going to church over the last 25 years, meaning 12% of the population, the largest concentration of church, you know, church decline in American history. And the author notes, trying to figure out why, what's going on in our culture, and one would be abuse and corruption, that is an issue. But he said, really, it's just mundane reasons. It's just common reasons. It's just that our American life just doesn't make it fit. One is that we've lost bandwidth for mutuality and common life and community because we prioritized individual accomplishment and financial success. And so work has morphed from a means of material production to a means of identity production. That's a really interesting phrase that, at least for college-educated elites, he says, scholars have coined the term laborism or workism, where work becomes a kind of religion, a way of finding meaning in community and transcendence. But at the same time, 87% of people report that they are disengaged from their work. And nevertheless, in this, situation, they're still trying, and yet our culture is one of anxiety and loneliness. It's like we're rubber bands stretched too tight about to snap, and anything that doesn't fit into that gets relegated to the margins. We've got to wonder, how much of that is in me? Do I, do I, have I imbibed that spirit of our age? It's good for us to think through our excuses and what they amount to. What are the excuses of our culture? What are the excuses I have of ignoring Jesus? Or excuses that push my faith to the margins 
of my life? What does that say about my priorities? Wonderful kind of taxonomy of what's going on in my heart in the excuses of the people. Well, then third, inclusion. So the servant reports the rejections of his master and across the board, the refusals to attend and the right master rightfully becomes angry. He's done a ton of work to bless his guests. When he's finally ready, they snub their nose at him. But the question I've liked as I've studied this week is, how does he express his anger? And in the parable, does he cancel the banquet or does he act in some sort of aggressive way, but we see in the parable is that he's going to have a lavish, festive banquet. It's going to happen. The way he expresses his anger is just changing the the guest list. And he sends servants to the streets and lanes of the city to bring them in, the poor, the cripple, the blind, and the lame. And the sense is if he invites, the first ones he invites refuse to attend, the respectable and the rich, if they refuse to come, he focuses on the needy and the dependent and the disabled and the underclass and the marginalized. He says, go to them, bring them in, and you have to bring them in because they can't believe they're invited. It just seems too good to be true that such as them would be invited to such a feast. You've got to persuade them. And so the servant goes out and does this and yet he comes back and he says, well, I've done it and there's still room. And I love that too because the master doesn't say, well, let's just curtain off a segment of the hall. Let's rent a smaller venue. What he does is let's just go get more people. I want many in my banqueting hall. So go out now further outside the city to the highways and hedges, to those that don't even belong to the city, who live outside. Maybe they're transient workers, or maybe they're, they're even homeless. Maybe they've lost everything. They live in the fields. Maybe they have dishonest, seedy lifestyles, dregs of societies, pariahs. They're, they're outcasts. Maybe they're thieves and prostitutes. Who is it that lives outside the city under the hedges? And he sends his servant out, but this time his servant is told to compel them to come in. And you see, you see Jesus in here. He's bringing in the poor, the needy. He's compelling the sinner to come into his banqueting hall. It's the way we see Jesus operate in the gospels. Compel them to come in from the highways and the byways. They don't even know there is a master. They don't belong to the city. Like, they know nothing about him and can't fathom they would ever be included in such an event. You've got to compel them about who your master is and how generous he is. And that's a wonderful way to think through our sharing of the good news. And here we also see the progress of the gospel. We see through the history, through the ages that the the Jews received the word of promise and in a sense they had accepted the first invitation and then we see that many of the Jews did not accept Christ and then he went to the outcasts within Israel and then it kept spreading to those who weren't a part of Israel which makes you and me look at ourselves and saying, where do we find ourselves here? Well, we were the highways and hedges And Jesus came after us. We were those without hope and a promise and he came after us with gospel grace. It it breaks our heart and makes us that way 
towards others. And then finally, if that seeks inclusion, then look at the exclusion. So in verse 24, it says, for I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. And at that point, Jesus summarizes everything. He's been talking in third person. Now he looks at the Pharisees square in the eye and it becomes first and second person. It's a, it's a direct warning to them. And now notice the shift. Jesus calls it my banquet. So all along, it, the master's banquet's been God's banquet and Jesus has been the servant. And now Jesus flips it and said, but it is my banquet. It's my banquet. I'm in the place of the master. I'm God in flesh among you. And I've come to my people and I will lay my life down for my people. I will be the banquet itself. In my body and blood, you will be forgiven and made righteous. And I am preparing the wedding feast of the lamb. I just have to warn you that it's not your religion and your respectability that gets you a place at my banquet. It's all about receiving me, receiving me. The time is ready, everything is now done. The cross is looming already. Will you receive me? To reject me is to exclude yourself. To receive me is to enter the banquet prepared for so many centuries and now brought to pass in my personal work with the sure hope that one day we'll sing hallelujah for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad for the wedding of the sea feast has come and the bride has made herself ready, you and me, which is the righteous deeds of the saints. It's a summons by Jesus to enter faith in him, the narrow door, and in doing that, to enter the banquet itself. Is that where you are today? Are there any excuses in your life that would keep you from doing that? Can you see that all of them pale in comparison to what Jesus earnestly offers you today? Amen. Let's stand.